0: If your cause is just, don't be afraid to disappoint others. See to it only that you never disappoint God. Well, that's just a few lines, and it sounds really simple, but it is really a guideline for life, isn't it? Um, In the development of Ananda, Swamiji, uh, we had two basic principles. There There were a few more guidelines that became relevant over the years, but these these two are very important. People are more important than things, more important than a project. People's spiritual well-being is the very definition of the purpose of Ananda. So there is no secondary purpose of Ananda that could ever be more important than the, than the spiritual well-being of the people involved. It came down to people are more important than things, but that was what it really meant behind it. But the other was... Uh, uh, a motto that he had seen in India that was the motto of one of the ruling families, one of the Raja families, uh, sato dharma, tato dharma, wait, (laughs) I can't even say it because I don't remember. Tato dharma, nope, I'm never going to be able to say it correctly, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to say it in English because I never say it in Sanskrit. It means where there is dharma, there is victory. Now the word dharma is, is tossed about a lot these days, so the more words get tossed about The more the definition gets a little bit diluted. What Dharma is, sometimes it's called duty, but that's not sufficient. Dharma are those actions which lead to expanded consciousness. And so, if we follow those actions that lead to expanded consciousness, there will always be victory. And the word victory also has to be understood, because that does not necessarily mean there will be triumph in the eyes of the world it will mean that there will be a triumph of, of higher consciousness over lower consciousness first within yourself. And how that manifests in the world remains to be seen, because even very good and spiritual people, don't it, things don't always work out. In fact, it's, I mean, well, we have the most um, extraordinary example of all in the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. And that's not exactly what you think of as an ideal ending for a, a divine avatar. But that is what happened. Now, of course, the real teaching of the life of Jesus was his resurrection. But the crucifixion was a necessary part of that. One could not have happened without the other. You know, um, the, I, went, I was with Swami Kriyananda when we were in Florence, Italy once, and we... No, not Florence. Is it Florence? It's the Uffizi. Now I can't remember whether that's in Rome or in Florence because it was a lot of years ago, but it's a it's a famous Italian museum. And we went, and we, most of what we looked at there was um, classical art, a great deal of which was religious about Jesus and so on. And a lot of it was about Jesus being crucified. There were lots of different variations. And when we walked out of the museum, I mean, some of it was, some of the art was just breathtakingly beautiful, speaking of the crucifixion, Swami just said in this kind of conversational way, I think it's time for a new theme. <laughs> I mean, like, I think we've, we've milked that one for pretty much all we can do, you know, and some of them were just unspeakably gory. I remember reading a story, I, I happen myself to have been raised Jewish, but not in an orthodox way, so, but I was reading something about someone who'd been raised in a very orthodox way, and as a child had crept into a Catholic church even though he wasn't allowed, just to see. And he was terrified to see this bleeding man nailed to the wall. I mean, it was a statue, but he, he just... I mean, think about it. He couldn't... There was no part of him that could comprehend why a house of worship would have an image like that. Now, I could speak at length about all the reasons that they would. But I remember in a, as it happened, I saw a church in Europe, um, and it was a picture of Christ on the cross, but he was standing in a pose of absolute triumph, like that. But it was still like he was on the cross, but not hanging and not bleeding like this. It was essentially Christ resurrected, but standing on the cross. But then all of a sudden, the posture on the cross is this extraordinarily expansive stepping forward in power, rather than You know, shrunken in suffering. Now, both are true. You know, so when we say here, if your cause is just, don't be afraid to disappoint others, see that you never, only that you never disappoint God, there's a lot of courage involved here because too often we are too much guided by what other people think. And it's actually a, A stage of spiritual growth to to come into, let's see, let me put it this way Persecution is not the same as bad karma. You know, difficult things can happen to a person, but they're not necessarily a punishment. Not that bad karma is a punishment, but we tend to think of good karma as everything is easy and pleasing to the egoic's concept of, ego's concept of what's good. And we tend to think that bad karma, this is just the way we use these words, are when it's not easy and it's not pleasing to the ego's way of doing things. But from the divine point of view and the whole spiritual path, living wisely and living well, is to perceive life for its longer rhythms and not for its short-term comfort and its longer rhythm is not even just what happens from birth to death in one lifetime but it's what happens after death and then in the in the subsequent birth because once we understand that be therefore perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect from Jesus was both a prediction and a commandment that eventually we must rise to that level we must purge from our consciousness all the confusion of delusion and know ourselves as we truly are. And even more compelling, we will never be at peace until we have achieved that, because we will have, you know, ephemeral fulfillment one after another. And ephemeral can last a whole lifetime or many lifetimes, but it will never completely satisfy us, ourselves, myself because my soul knows that perfect bliss is the only final satisfaction. So we constantly have to face into one limitation after another. And so when it says here, if your cause is just, don't be afraid to disappoint others. Where there's dharma, there's victory. So if if one knows that this is the right thing to do, the only measure of that is divine law. Um, because people just don't always know. And even even well-meaning people. I had a very interesting question in the satsang I was giving, um, where, let's see, how would it, how did it go? Oh, this woman was talking about unconditional love. And she was talking about this anger that she holds toward her parents. And um, she wasn't specific in it, but she talked about being very angry at the way they had raised her or this or that. And she somehow gave me more of a picture of it, but the details escaped me. But I I gave her various answers and suggested that she start trying to love her kitten and her puppy unconditionally before she tried to tackle her parents because she didn't have as much water under the bridge with her puppy as she had with her parents. So she needed to build her muscles where it was a little bit easier. I've perceived that when people have a big issue, it's usually manifests in lots of smaller ways. And, they'll, and people will sometimes just th- hurl themselves repeatedly in futile effort to overcome against the giant wall of the big issue and constantly be expressing it in a small way all the time. In other words, it's a mental habit. And if you begin to dismantle the mental habit where it's easier, like being angry at your husband for not rinsing the dishes, or upset with your co-workers because the email came late, or the garbage man for spilling some of the garbage on the sidewalk, I mean, the response to be angry needs to be worked on because then you will chip away at the mental habit and eventually can go to the bigger one. So that was, that was the primary answer I gave her. But then afterwards, because somehow I, I knew this was part of it, I said, you know, much of what your parents were doing for you um, was fear-based, but it was based on the fear of what might happen to you if you didn't conform to these things they thought they were necessary. In other words, it was perhaps misguided, but the intention of it was to protect you. I was speaking particularly of her father at that point, the, because this was a woman asking, um, the inclination of a father is to protect the daughter. So, you know, the father is responsible for money and well-being and all these different things in that family that she was speaking of, and she, he just was trying to protect her. She felt suppressed and, and bullied but that wasn't his intention. You know, it's like, so what I'm trying to say in this, and I'm coming back to the opinions of others, her father was not really helpful to her. And what he wanted from her did not, was not dharma in the sense that it did not elevate her consciousness. But it was his opinion. But at what point do we... At what point do we just say, I have to do what's right? I was helping a friend recently who, it, it was in her personal, a personal relationship of hers, and I was trying to help her see that there would be another response that would be more beneficial for her long-term happiness. And um, she, finds, she kept saying, "Well, I don't think I can do that because that's not the way I was raised. I finally said, you are 56 years old. I said, when do you think you should put down the way you were raised? And she was sweet enough, she just sort of went, oh. (laughs) Yeah, oh. It's like we just keep repeating these things. This is the way I was raised. This is my culture. This is what my mother taught me. Are we just going to say those things endlessly? At what point do we become our own person? You know, people, someone came to me yesterday saying, you know, my, my family, and often they're talking about family, but not always, my family wants me to do this. I said, why would you do that? Well, they asked me to do it. Have they ever asked you to do anything that was, excuse me, actually good for you? <laughs> well, no. And then fortunately, we came up with a marvelously impersonal way to say no to them, that, oh, I'd really love to do it, but I can't because... And that was a very acceptable reason. But still, is it dharma? Now, yes, we have a duty to people. I mean, there's no... It's just as stupid to randomly defy as it is to mindlessly obey. What we have to do is we simply have to remove the emotion from the question and ask what's right. You know, what is the right thing? What is the right thing objectively in in, in terms of divine law? and what is the right thing for me? What will expand my consciousness? It's very interesting. Swamiji gave an instruction to um, and many of us. I've, I've now been in a more or less of a, a, a position of responsibility with Ananda for many decades. But there was sort of a time when Ananda was beginning to expand from one community where Swami Kriyananda was essentially in charge to multiple communities in which he was passing out to us a great deal of responsibility because he was a marvelous leader in terms of his willingness to pass on responsibility, which is why Swami died in 2013 and Ananda's just continued to expand actually and flourish because he cultivated true leadership. He wasn't afraid of cultivating leadership. But when he was helping us to understand, he said something that was really important. He said, It's presumptuous in making a decision, it's presumptuous not to take yourself into account. And this is what he meant. He said, for example, perhaps there's a situation where the appropriate response would be a stern one, but it's not good for you to be stern. You know, you need to learn to be compassionate or charitable. He said, be charitable. Because otherwise, you're moving out of dharma. You're allowing yourself to be molded by external forces rather than by your personal relationship with God. So we don't think about the opinions of others, we only think about being right with God. And in, in the Ananda communities, which of course are marvelously supportive because one of the huge benefits is that we're all work, doing this together, I mean, you can say to the people that you're working with, not, not, not to everyone, you have to use your discretion, but I understand, but I, it just wouldn't be good for me to do that. And everyone will say, yes, where there is dharma, there is victory. And there, that, there comes also, you see, this trust that if we are acting according to the highest principles we can understand, then even if some short-term issue is contradicted, the long-term result will be positive. And I've certainly lived by this principle for a very long time. Sometimes I call it doing my dharma in a vacuum, is what I call it, because there's a vacuum meaning I have no idea how this is really going to work out. There's no clear idea of what the consequences of this are going to be, or I really don't know where this intuition is going to take me, but I know that this is dharma for, for me or for the situation right now, and I will just do that with faith that where there is dharma, there is victory. And I've done this for a long time, and I highly recommend it. Among other things, it keeps your conscience really clear And uh, that's a a benefit in life that can hardly be, uh, the importance of that can hardly be overstated. So I hope this is helpful to you. God bless you. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.